Masechet Baba Kamadaf Lamedchet. The Mishnah mentioned the law that Shor Shel Yisrael Shanagach Shor Shel Goy Patur, a Jew's ox that gores a non-Jew's ox, the Jew does not have to pay. But the other way around, the non-Jew's ox that gores a Jew's ox, the non-Jew has to pay a full amount, regardless of whether the animal is tam or mu'ad. So now we analyze it. Amre, mimanafshach, ire ayhu davka de goiki nagach d'Israel name lipatar, vire ayhu lav davka afilu d'Israel ki nagach de goi nihayav. So what's the source of this? No matter what you say, it doesn't make sense that there should be such a disparity. Uh, regarding the pasuk, um, that if someone goes short re'ayahu, so what does the word re'ayahu mean? If it means, it's a precise definition, that it means another Jew, well, in that case, um, when uh, that of a goy, a uh, gor is that of a Yisrael, the non-Jew should be should not be liable because the law only applies between two Jews. You have to pay; they have to pay each other. But um, if a non-Jew is involved, no matter which way, whether they're the victim or the perpetrator, would not have to pay anything at all. And if the ayahu is not precise and just means another person, not necessarily another Jew, well, in that case, then even if that of a Jew cause uh, the that of a non-Jew, then the Jew should be liable. Because if it means anybody, then the laws should apply the same to anybody. So therefore, either uh, neither have to pay or both have to pay. How could you derive from the pasuk that the non-Jew has to pay, but the Jew does not have to pay the non-Jew. Amar biabhu, amar kera. Amar vaimodet eres ra'avayater goyim. Ra'ashev mitzvot shekibbelo alehem b'nei noach, kevan shelo kiyemu, amad v'etir mamonan Israel. Rabbi Abu derives it from the following pasuk in Habakkuk that God stood up and shook the earth. He looked at it and he made the nations tremble. So this is literally talking about how God comes and judges the earth and so all those who are evil will be judged and so on. Uh, so what did he see? Uh, what specifically did he see that caused him to be angry and punish and uh, the and cause the non-Jews thereby to tremble. He saw that the seven mitzvot that B'nai Noach accepted upon themselves, uh, they did not keep. Um, so even though seven, not, not even 613. And so then he said, now listen, as a punishment to the nations for not keeping the Sheva Mitzvot, um, he says, your money is going to be permitted and given to the Jews. Not all their money. It means in this particular case um, that if a, uh, a non-Jew will gore the ox of a Jew, then the non-Jew, the Jew will not have to pay them. And the other way around, the non-Jew will have to pay full amount even for a short time. So uh, really, this is actually, you know, from pure justice, it should be the same. You're right. The, the question is correct. Either both should pay or both should not pay. Um, but um, this is as a fine, as a punishment for the uh, Gentiles not keeping the Shev Mitzvot Ben Anoach. They have to pay full amount and they don't get paid. Okay, that's source number one. Rabbi Yochanan Amar Mehacha, Hofia Mahar Paran, Miparan, Hofia Mamonam Le Yisrael. Rabbi Yochanan derives a similar uh, law from this that uh, the, the Pasuk in the introduction to Vizot Abaracha 
describing God coming to Israel, coming to Har Sinai, it says he appeared from Har Paran. This is connected with the famous Midrash that before Hashem gave the, gave the Torah to Bnei Israel, who said, he went to other nations, including Paran, that's where Yishmael is, and said, do you want the Torah? And they said, what does it say in it? And Hashem said, it says, don't steal. They said, oh, we all, we love stealing. That's, uh, that's the basis of our economy is stealing, so we, can't, we cannot accept it. Uh, so when he heard that, then he said, Hophia, here in the sense of uh, revealed or granted the money of the uh, Gentiles to Israel because they did not accept the Torah and they committed themselves to stealing since they steal from each other. So they don't value their own private property. Therefore, uh, Israel does not have to either. And so as a punishment for their immorality, uh, their money is given over to Israel. And that's why they have to pay full amount and they don't get paid for dam for damages by their oxen. Tanya Namehachi. So we saw two opinions, Rabbi Abu and Rabbi Yochanan, who are both Amoraim, and now we say there's actually a, a Baraita. That says the same thing. So the Brayta quotes the law of the Mishnah that uh, ox of a Jew that goes out of a non-Jew, the Jew does not have to pay, but of a non-Jew that goes out of a Jew, whether it's Tam or Moad, he has to pay full amount, as it says in Kos Pasuk and Yechabakuk, and then and Veomer, and it also quotes the pasuk from Devarim. So my ve'omer, the Gemara is going to analyze this baraita. What, why is it giving another pasuk? You already have one pasuk. What's the what? What benefit do you have from the second one? As follows: Yosef. If you say, I need the Pasuk of En Chabakuk to teach me a different um, teaching altogether, that one, the teaching of Rabatana or the teaching of Rav Yosef, which we're going to see in a minute. Um, if you say, I need that Pasuk for something else, well then I'll give you another Pasuk, that one from Devarim, that Hashem appeared to the other nations uh, first, and they rejected the Torah, and therefore Hashem granted uh, their, the, this, these payments to Israel. Good. My de, so that you see that the Vraita has both of these Pesukim, and backs up the statements of the Amoraim. Now we ask, Matana, what did Rabatana learn from the Pasuk in Chabakuk? Here also is that Hashem saw that the seven misvot that he gave to Bnei Noach they were not fulfilling and therefore they deserve punishment. Uh, but the punishment is not as um, as Rabbi Abu said. Um, the the, uh, the the payment the taking away from them the payment for the for oxen but rather a different punishment that Hashem caused them to go into exile um, we know that the northern ten tribes the south went to exile by the Babylonians but before that the northern ten tribes went into exile um, under Ashur under Sanherib well Sanherib didn't only send Israelites into exile he also sent other nations he did this to every nation that he conquered in order to make them make sure that they wouldn't rebel, he took the top elite from each nation, the top, just, you know, I don't know, top 5-10% of the leaders, p politicians, 
teachers, philosophers, military people, and move them to a different country where they would not rebel anymore. And so um, that not only Israel, but also these the other nations, they also went into exile. Why? What sin did they do? Because they didn't keep the Sheva Mitzvot Ben Noach. This idea of the exile, uh, historical truth of the exile of uh, the other nations is very important because of that. Um, we say that we don't know which nations, all the, all the nations have been mixed up anymore. So we don't know who is Ammon, Moab, Amalek, all these ancient nations, even if they happen to be on the land, that is the historical land of Ammon and Moab, we don't know if they, these are actually the people from that original nation anymore. And therefore the restrictions, prohibitions that regarding those ancient nations do not apply um, anymore after this mix-up of all the populations of the world. Okay. That where does Rabbi uh, Matana learn that the word Vayater, uh, which means literally to permit, before we said it means that he permitted to them the, uh, the, 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 the money, their money was permitted to the, the Jews, but here it means to, uh, to be in exile. Where do you see that the word vayater means exile? Here in Habakkuk it says, um, he let loose uh, the non-Jews. Um, so in Vayikra also, where it says, the Aramaic is to leap upon the earth, meaning to jump, to move them from one place and exile them to another place. Good. Rav Yosef. What does Rav Yosef learn from this pasuk in Habakkuk that he can't use it for the oxen law? Hashem saw that the nations did not fulfill the seven misvot that he gave to them. So he said, you know what? It's permitted to you. So literally, but yater, as in the, in, the, in the usual definition of he made it permitted, right? You can't keep these laws? Okay, forget about it. You know what? You, you're, you're, there's no prohibitions anymore. So now we ask about that. Itagure, itgar. So that means they profited, they benefited from sinning. Imken masinu hoten isgar. We see someone who transgresses and rewarded. It's not, you shouldn't reward bad behavior. So why should that be? That's not. It sounds like it doesn't sound like a punishment. It sounds like a reward. And so uh, more, the son of Rabbanah said that this is indeed a punishment. That even if they now do fulfill it, they won't receive reward for it. In other words, it's a merit to have commandments because a commandment gives you a chance to fulfill the commandment and then get reward thereby. So now they lose the chance to be. Uh, commanded, and then uh, then they do lose the chance to be um, commended for fulfilling the commandment. Okay, when we ask Vela, is that true that even if someone is not commanded, they don't get any reward? Is that true that someone who's not commanded will not get any reward? Uh, look at this Braita where the Bimeir teaches. Even if a non-Jew uh, learns Torah, he, it will be like a Kohen Gadol. How do you know that? Because regarding all the mitzvot, it says that a person will do them. It says Ha'adam. If a human will do them, he will live by them. That's the reward. So the Pasuk doesn't say if Kohanim do them or Livim or Israelim or Jews do them. Rather, it says if a human 
perform uh, performs the commandments, he will get reward and live by them. So we see that even if someone is a non-Jew, if they learn Torah, they can rise up to the status like a Kohen Gadol. That's high praise. And so you see, they're not commanded, certainly not commanded, even if you say they're commanded in Seva Mitzvot, Sheva Mitzvot, they're not commanded to learn the whole Torah, and yet they do receive reward. So it's not true that they don't get any reward. Here's the answer. Amre and Mekabalin Alehen, Sachar Kim even though they will not get reward as someone who is commanded and fulfills it, but they will get a lower level of reward um, for someone who is not commanded and nevertheless fulfills it. As Rabbi Hanina said, greater is reward for someone who is commanded and does it. Uh, we might think the opposite. Um, that if you uh, have to do something, then okay, you get lower reward. If you don't even have to and you volunteer and go and out of your way and do it, then you deserve greater reward. Then there is some logic to that. Uh, but it's also human nature that if you have to do something, then you don't want to do it, right? If you give a kid a book and says, you know, as schoolwork and says you have to write a report on it and you have to for school, they don't want to read the book. But if they happen to pick up the book for fun, then they'll say, oh, it's a good book, and they enjoy it. Um, it's true for volunteers. The best way to, to, to um, ruin a volunteer is by paying them. This is studies that show people that volunteer, and they go uh, to a soup kitchen every day, and they, they help people. They're doing, happy to do it. But if you start paying them, then they already don't want to do it anymore. How much am I getting paid? When can I get a day off? And so this is human nature, that if, uh, if I have to do something, then I feel like I don't want to do it. But if I do it anyway, um, then I deserve greater reward. And indeed, in that sense, it deserves greater reward because when, uh, you know, if someone's just volunteering, so they might do it one day and they might not do it. But to be responsible to fulfill a certain job um, and, uh, you know, whatever it is, so that means you, you have to do it and you can't just uh, take off. Um, so to be responsible for something and, and then fulfill it, uh, does indeed deserve greater reward. So the punishment, this was in fact a punishment. Originally, the nations of the world were commanded in Sershav Misvat, and thereby they could get the high, a high reward for fulfilling that which they are commanded to do. But when Hashem saw that they were not fulfilling it, that's what the Pasuk in Habakkuk is talking about, according to Rav Yosef. So Hashem said, you know what? Forget about it. You're not commanded. You could do it and get a lower reward, but I'm not, I can't rely on you you are no longer going to be rewarded as one who is responsible for doing so. We have a, a fascinating story about this, uh, this law that a Jew uh, doesn't have to pay, but a non-Jew does have to pay, which seems like it's unfair. And so one time, the Roman government sent two uh, military officials, Seradeyot Yotot, same, it comes from the same root as the English word strategy. I was asked to do, do it, it means a soldier or military official. And they sent them to the sages of Israel and said, teach us Torah. Why? Were they just so interested in learning Torah? Well, maybe there were actually, um, uh, Judaism was actually somewhat popular um, among the, in the Roman Empire. 
many people who thought that the Greek mythology was all nonsense, and Roman mythology, uh, if they learned a little philosophy, they knew it was nonsense. Uh, they saw the Jews believe in one God, fine people, and they looked up to them, and many um, converted or wanted to come convert. So it could be that they came because they were interested. Uh, more, another interpretation, I think more likely, is that they were suspicious of the Jews. So what, are the, what are these laws they have in some different language that they go and study? Um, uh, you know, what, what are these laws? Are they good laws? Are they bad laws? We want to check out this minority religion and people that is under the Roman Empire. So they sent two uh, people to go and check out their laws and report back. So, these were some brilliant Roman officials that they went and they read, that means, you know, Tanakh, and they shanu, they learned Mishnah, they repeated it again, and they learned it all very well. They said, we analyzed all of your Torah, and it is all good and just except for one law this very uh, law this Mishnah that an ox of a Jew that goes out of a non-Jew does not have to pay but that of a Jew that goes out of a Jew has to pay full amount whether Tam and Mu'ad this uh, is uh, a double standard this is unfair Right, because Mimanashach, and this is the officials, see, they know, they learned Daf Yomi. Because uh, what's, uh, uh, doesn't make sense. Because what does the Pasuk mean? If the word Ra'ehu is precise, it means Jew to, it means a Jew, then the, uh, that of a non Jew that goes out of a Jew, the non Jew also should not have to pay because the law only applies to Jews. And if you take the word Ra'ehu not precisely to mean anyone, then even a Jew's uh, ox would have to pay if it goes that of a non-Jew. And so this does not make sense to us. However, because we're so impressed with the whole Torah, okay, we found one law that's uh, problematic, so we're not going to inform this back to the kingdom, right? We're going to keep your... Um, uh, your secret safe with us and uh, and protect you. So that's a very interesting and wonderful story. Uh, there is a interesting parallel in the Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, where at the end of the story they says that they after they left Jerusalem they didn't reach very far before they forgot everything they learned. Right, just in case they decide later on to tell on the Jews so they wouldn't be able to because they forgot everything. Another interesting difference in the Talmud Yerushalmi is that they don't. Uh, complain just about one thing, um, they actually find four laws that are unfair, unjust. There's a difference between the way Jews and non-Jews are treated. And so, in this version, it also says that, it says, all of your Torah is beautiful except for, and it says, except for shne devarim, except for two items. Uh, this is weird because there's actually four items mentioned. So everybody asks a question about this. Why does it say two items if it means four items? Uh, Professor Rosh Rosenthal um, uh, has a brilliant uh, answer, which is that the Shne Devarim is actually referring to um, this Greek, ancient Greek work called Disoi Logoi, which literally translates to two things or two reasons, two uh, um, uh, uh, ways of logic. 
Um, and this work was a staple of ancient uh, Greek uh, schooling. And in this work, uh, they say that anything that you argue, you can also argue the opposite. So anything you say is bad, you can also argue is good. For example, uh, death is bad for those who die, but it's good for grave diggers. And so you can always argue something and it's opposite. So this is, comes to be a classic work to mean, you know, something and it's opposite or um, a double standard. And so over here, when these uh, Greeks, uh, these uh, Roman um, officials, they uh, must have known about that. And they said, everything is beautiful except for the following double standards. And so a list then four double standards. Uh, so that's a, a parallel. There's also a parallel in the Sifre as well. So this is a very important story uh, showing that the rabbis were self-aware that this law in particular uh, seems unfair, that it has a double standard. And um, uh, while they don't provide any explanation to these Roman soldiers, because they were like, okay, well, it's just one exception. We're all okay with that. Uh, the rabbis themselves said that really it should have been that the, the uh, non-Jews would get paid the same as Jews would get paid. However, this is a punishment, a fine, uh, because they have not kept the other Sheva Mitzvah Ben Noach, and therefore um, they uh, are, are not deserving of the equal treatment regarding um, Nizikin of their oxen. We next have a long agada that's only tangentially related to what came before. We were just talking about how if a non-Jew performs a mitzvah, even though they are not commanded, they still get reward for that as someone not commanded. Uh, so that theme is going to come up um, here uh, in the context of Amon and Moab. Okay, the story goes, Rav Shemuel, Rav Shemuel, the son of Yehuda, his daughter unfortunately died. Rav Shemuel lives in Bavel, right? It says Rav. Rabbi is from Eretz Yisrael. Rav, anything, is from Bavel. Ula was a sage that went back and forth. He lived in Eretz Yisrael, but he traveled to Bavel often. And so the rabbis in Bavel say to Ula, uh, listen, Rav Shemuel, uh, daughter died. Let's go together to visit and give him comfort. And Ula refused to go together with those with those rabbis because he said, "What am I going to do with the comfort of these Babylonians?" Because the usual phrase that they say when they go comfort someone is actually blasphemy. What do the Babylonians say when they go visit someone in mourning? They say, oh, what could be done? What could we do? What's done is done, right? Um, I wish we could, I uh, wish uh, we could have done something, we could have done something to change the, this matter. But now that it's done, right, we should be comforted. That's what they would say. But that implies that if they could do something, they would. And that denies God's decree. If someone died, that means God decreed. You, the appropriate thing is to say, Sidu Kadin, right? God is a righteous judge. What's done is done. And this is in uh, uh, this is for the best. In God's eyes, he knows better. Um, by, by saying, uh, right, alas, uh, for what happened, you're saying that it's too bad that this happened and it should have been differently. 
and that is uh, questioning, challenging God's decision. So therefore, Allah would not go with them. Uh, this is very interesting. I mean, it doesn't seem like such a terrible thing to say. And in fact, the Babylonians did in fact say that. You're cheering someone up. Uh, but this law is codified in Shulchan Aruch that one should not say, well, what could you do? Nothing. We can't change what happened. Um, but rather, you should look for um, uh, a, a, um, a, a spin or an understanding rather that, um, that uh, explains that this is God's will and in some way it's for the best. Okay, so Azalhu Lechudai Gabe. So then Ula, he's not going to not visit the, the rabbi who's in mourning, but he went by himself so he wouldn't have to join in with the eulogy that the other rabbis gave. And he gave his own. Uh, words of Nehama. We're going to see it's more like a Hasi Nehama. Um, it's, um, uh, all right, let's read it and you'll judge. Amar Lev, Ayomad Hashem Moshe, Atasar et Moab, Atidgar Bam Milchama. When in, uh, in the end of the 40 years when Moshe and Bnei Sel are traveling uh, up on the other side of the Jordan, Hashem tells them, uh, do not uh, start up with Moab and don't make a war with them. Now, why does Hashem have to tell him, tell Moshe, don't make a war? Was Moshe going to make a war on his own without asking permission? I, uh, obviously, if you're going to start a war, Moshe would have said, uh, would have asked Hashem and said, uh, I think I should make a war. What do you think? Right? And made sure he, should, should have, he would have gotten confirmation from the from the elders they would have decided and so was he going to do it by himself and that Hashem had to preempt and it says yes in fact he might have because he might have learned a kabachomed on his own that it's appropriate to start a war against Moab. What's the kabachomed? Look how Hashem said to go and fight against the Midianim after the this all after the whole incident, the Midianite woman came and seduced the the Israelite men and caused them terrible sin and punishment. So look here how the the Midianim actually only were helping out the Moabites. Moab started the whole thing. Uh, Balak, the king of Moab, he's the one that said, "Oh, we got to do something about this nation." Moab, he, Moab is the one that hired Balak from Midian, and he's the he's the one that went and got the Midianite woman. And so really Moab is the main instigator and yet the Torah says go and take uh, take uh, to go and avenge the Midianites. So he made a kavachomer. Moabim asman If Hashem said that we should go and start a war against the Midianites, all the more so we should start a war against the Moabites who were the original main attackers. And so uh, Moshe would have decided based on the kavachomer. He wouldn't have to go and consult Hashem before that war. That's why Hashem had to pre- preempt and say, but don't do that. Hashem said to Moshe, your, what's in your mind is not what's on my mind. I have a broader vision and I see that there is going to be two fledglings, two beautiful doves that are going to come from this nation. Uh, that's Rut, the Moaviyah, and from Amonim, which is related to the Moabites, they both are from the daughters of Lot, um, that Naama is going to come from her. Uh, so Rut, the uh, 
the um, great-great-grandmother of David, and Naama, who is one of the wives of Shelomo, and the mother of the next king of Judea, Rehavam. And so these are going to be two very important, uh, uh, wonderful women are going to come from the Moabites and the Ammonites, and therefore Moshe, do not destroy the Moabites. Even though, you're right, there was a Kavachomer, and they were very evil, and they're the main instigators, and therefore they deserve to be uh, destroyed. Nevertheless, don't, because we need King David to come from them. And so uh, you have to keep them alive. Hashem saw, foresaw all that. Now, Ula is also all part of Ula's uh, uh, consolation. And here, Ulas has his own Kavachomer. If God, for these two wonderful doves that um, will come from these nations, Hashem had mercy on these two big nations. He decided don't not to destroy the entire nation of the Moabites and the Ammonites, as evil as they were. He didn't destroy them because eventually, many, many uh, generations later, uh, uh, Ruth and Naamah would come from them, and so he saved the uh, nations for them. Then all the more so, um, this daughter that you lost, if something good would have come from her if she was going to have a child that would be righteous or grandchild somewhere down the road then surely Hashem would have saved her and she would have uh, grown and married and uh, had children. Uh, the fact that she did not means that nothing good was going to come from her. Right? That is only implied. He only says uh, if she was uh, fitting and right and, and something righteous would have come from her then uh, she would have been saved. And so, you know, don't worry about anything that was lost, possibly lost, by her dying young and not having uh, not having children. You didn't lose anything. She wasn't worthy. All right, so we're listening to this, and this seems to be um, a, a bit uh, cruel, uh, kind of, you know, uh, to, to tell him, you know, don't worry, you didn't lose anything. She had nothing going for her anyway. Nothing good was going to come from her. So, uh, you know, don't be sad. Okay, that doesn't sound like great words of comfort. Uh, so the Rishonim ask about this and they say, well, maybe his main point was that she fulfilled her mission already. Her mission was not, in, in life, was not that she would have children for a next generation. That's not, that, that's not what she was here for. Uh, she, whatever she did in her short life, uh, she helped people, she inspired, she taught, whatever she did, that's what, that was her mission. And so, so she was a good person and she fulfilled her mission, but there was nothing more that needed to come from her. Okay, anyway, um, so that, those were his words of comfort. The point for us is that we learn from here that even a non-Jew um, that does something good, uh, something uh, they deserve reward. And we're going to see this in the following. Right, so far above, we only saw that if something good is going to happen, Hashem will withhold punishment 
even if they're guilty. Uh, but now we see that in fact he will reward even for a small uh, good deed, there is great reward. Look how HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, does not deprive any creature of, uh, of reward, even for a small good deed of using speech in a, in a pleasant way. You should never say curse words, disgusting words. You should always uh, use euphemisms, use nice words to describe no matter what it is. And look at, cause look at the comparison between the two daughters of Lot. The older, uh, the oldest of uh, uh, Lot's daughters, she called her son Moab, which literally means from father. The name of Moab permanently is this terrible word that has to remind everyone that this child is born of incest between a father and a daughter. So what, what a terrible name to use. Uh, what terrible use of language. Because of that, Hashem told Moshe, um, Al-Tasad at Moab, don't start up with them and don't make a war with them. And we infer, okay, Moshe, you can't make a war with them, but if you want to impose on them Angadia, forced labor, you can. You can make them, uh, you can make them uh, forced laborers for you. So you can't oppress them, you just can't wipe them out in war. The younger of the daughters, um, she called her son Ben Ami, the daughter of my nation. So that's not, uh, that's a much nicer way to say it. It kind of alludes that the daughter of my nation, the daughter of a relative, um, but it's not father. Okay, a daughter of a nation, that could be any Anybody. And so she uses, used roundabout language that was sound, sounded nicer. It has the same implication, um, but anybody hearing it would just say, oh, a daughter of my nation sounds okay, because she was more careful with language and used language in a nicer way. Therefore, um, when Hashem tell, when they come to Ammon, Hashem tells Moshe, "Don't harass them. Don't contend with them at all. Don't don't even uh, don't don't even do anything negative towards them. Not only not to f- start a war with them and kill them. Don't even impose forced labor upon them." So look at this. Just this one name that the the daughters of Lot gave hundreds of years before. One daughter used language in a nicer way than the other daughter, and you see what a big difference it makes later on that one uh, is going to uh, be uh, be uh, 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 is authorized that they will be um, uh, servants, and the other one that they will Benesa will not start up with them at all. And now another lesson where you see even a small act can lead to great reward, and this time it's the older that did something better. Um, a person should always do a mitzvah as quickly as possible. Don't say, I'll do my mitzvah tomorrow, I could get it done. It's a mitzvah, do it immediately. Because look, the one night that the older daughter uh, older daughter performed her mitzvah before the younger daughter now this is called the mitzvah here um uh, that but be even though it was uh, incest but they thought that the whole world is destroyed and they're the last three people on earth so 
From their perspective, they thought they were doing a good thing. But anyway, the fact that she, the Bechira, she went and uh, acted first. So because she acted first to repopulate the world, so she had a merit that she would have four generations of rulers before uh, her sister did. Who is that? Um, this is uh, eventually from Moab came Ruth, and Ruth's children are Oved, Yishai, David, and Shalomo, all important people and rulers over Israel. And all that was before the descendant of Naama, because the, the younger one, um, her descendant was Ammon, and eventually Ammon gave birth to uh, Naama. And Naamah's son was Rehavam, who is the king after Shalomo. Right, the name of Rehavam's mother uh, is Naamah Ha'amonit. There you go. It says Ammonit. Um, so we see that for um, uh, doing a mitzvah quickly, one night, just one night earlier, uh, Moab got a merit to have rulers for four generations before Ammon. All right. So that's the uh, conclusion of the lesson. Uh, that uh, even a small act, even by a non-Jew who's not commanded, uh, nevertheless uh, deserves great reward. You can imagine all the more so a reward for those who are commanded. So far we saw the law regarding non-Jews, um, but now what about the law regarding a Kuti? This is a Samaritan. These are the remnants of the northern ten tribes uh, who uh, are took upon themselves the laws of the Torah. They have they believe in the Chumash only, not Nevi'im or Kituvim, because uh, Nevi'im and Kituvim talk about Yerushalayim, and they they're from the north, and they don't believe that Yerushalayim is the capital, but rather Shechem. And so um, they have this in-between status. Are they members of the Berit or not? Um, they're not technically Jewish because Jewish comes from Yehuda. That means coming from the south. Um, but we're going to say, are they Jewish or not? To mean, are they part of the Berit? Are they obligated in Torah? Or are they not? So, uh, so here we see the law regarding them when it comes to oxen. Um, if an ox of an Israelite meaning a Jew, uh, a, a, a gore is that of a kuti, the Jew does not have to pay. But the acts of a kuti that gore is that of a Jew, well, then that they apply, now we apply Torah law. If the Samaritans, ox is tam, they pay half. If it's muah, they pay a full amount. So you see already from here that at least in one direction, they follow Torah, we, we, we follow Torah law. But in the other direction, we treat them like non-Jews and don't pay them. So what's going on here? Rabbi Meir disagrees with Tanakama and he says, we treat them like non-Jews totally. Uh, that of a Jew that goes out of a Samaritan does not have to pay, whereas that of a Samaritan that goes out of a, that of a Jew has to pay full amount whether it's time and whether it's Mu'ad. All right, so now that we see this Machloket, we see that Tanakhama is treating them um, as somewhat, somewhat uh, uh, like Jews uh, because at least they do have to pay like Jews. Um, but Rabbi Meir is, is treating them totally like non-Jews. So now let's analyze. So does this mean that according to Rabbi Meir, the Samaritans are uh, converts by lions? This goes back to the story in Melachim. 
where the Spectre uh, Sancheriv, who mixed up all the nations and brought, took people out of the tent north and brought other people in. And so now there's new people and they don't know how to worship. Uh, the, 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 they don't know how to worship Hashem. And then lions come to attack them. And so now the, the people in the north says, this is terrible. And they say, the reason why lions are attacking because we're not serving the local God here. They were pagans that believed that every country has a God. So they said, we need some Kohanim to come back and teach us Torah. So the king does allow, allow a Kohen to come back and teach them Torah, and thereby they convert. Now, what's the status of that conversion? If they converted only because they were scared of lions, that's conversion under duress, and therefore it's not a valid conversion, and they're really not Jewish. So the Bimeir thinks that they are not Jewish, and therefore he treats them as non-Jews, and that explains the Bimeir's law, whereas Tanakama will treat them, at least uh, in, in uh, one direction, as Jews. Now, Urminhi, uh, we have a contradiction regarding the Bimeir. Is that true, that the Bimeir thinks that Samaritans are not valid converts? Here we have a Mishnah in Masech Nida. Kol haketamim ba'abim berekem tehorin. Rabbi Yehuda metameh b'pnei shehem kishehen gerim v'toim. Miben ha'goyim tehorim, miben Yisrael, miben ha'kotim, Rabbi Meir metameh hachamim metarin shelo nechshedu Yisrael al kitmehen. Okay, this Mishnah is regarding ketamim. This is a, 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 a piece of clothing, a cloth that has a blood stain on it. And now if it's from a Nida, then it's going to be Tameh. Um, so, but Anida is only if it's Jewish. Midaut on a, from a Torah law, only blood from a Jew causes Tumat Nida. Uh, blood from a non Jewish woman does not cause Tumat Nida. Midaoraita. Uh, there is a Drabanan against it, but not Midaoraita. Now, there was a place called Rekem. Uh, seems to be in the southeast near Petra. And the people there were not observant of Torah. And the question is are they even Jewish or not? So according to Tanakama, anything that comes from Rekem, we can assume that that, that, uh, that bloodstain is Tahor because the people that live there are not Jewish and therefore you don't have to worry about it. Uh, the Biyuda, however, says it's Tameh because they are Jewish, but they went off the derech, they're mistaken. They forgot about their Judaism and that's why for you know in their actions they looked just like non-Jews, that's why you could mistake them for non-Jews, but actually um, originally ge genealogically they are Jewish and therefore Therefore, uh, the nida blood from them is tameh, um, and so their 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 uh, stained cloths would be will be tameh. Okay, that's one machloket. And now, in general, when we find something, um, uh, some a uh, 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 cloth with a blood stain, if it's found among non-Jews, it's tahor, midoraita, because they, they don't uh, cause tumah. Uh, if it's found among Jews or Samaritans, here's why we're bringing this whole thing, the Bimeir says it's tameh. So we see from here that the Bimeir considers Samaritans to be Jews because he thinks that their, um, their nida blood is tameh. Is tameh. Hachamim say is tahor because um, we are we don't um, suspect uh, Jews of leaving their bloodstained clothing around. Jews know that this is, is causes tumah. They're not going to leave it in public. They're going to put it away somewhere. So if we find it in public, then we can assume that it belongs to a non-Jew. Okay, so this is our main point of our question is here. The Bimeir above said that um, uh, must, that Bimeir said that for the laws of uh, uh, injuring oxen, we treat Samaritans like non-Jews. It must mean that Samaritans are not 
not valid converts. They are not Jews. Uh, but here it says that their bloodstains found among them are, are Tameh. That means they are Jewish. So, that must be that they are true converts. So, what are we going to do? So, in fact, Rabbi Abahu says, Rabbi Meir thinks that they are, in fact, Jewish. And that explains the Nida law. Uh, but the injury, ox injury law, that is a fine that the rabbis imposed upon them so that the Jews will not assimilate with them. Really, they are good converts and they are Jewish. And so really, you could marry them. However, because they have very different beliefs and practices, they did not want regular Jew, you know, rabbinic Jews to go and uh, fraternize with them and marry them. And so if we treat the law the same, that one pays uh, um, a Samaritan for uh, damage to their ox, and Samaritan also pays, you know, the short of time half and, and Mu'ad whole, then people will say, oh, this is not a law. That law doesn't apply to non-Jews. Oh, I see these people are Jewish. You know what? Uh, maybe we'll have a party with them and uh, they'll end up marrying. So the rabbis didn't want that. Therefore, they made a fine and they said, you know what? Don't pay Samaritans. Samaritans have to pay full amount so that they'll be treated like non-Jews and people will not come to assimilate. Okay, Mativa Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera has a challenge from Mishnah Kitubot where we see that a fine is in fact um, uh, imposed even in a law that has to do with a Samaritan. As follows, um, if el velu narot sheyesh mahen lehen kenas haval mamzeret val netina val akutit visa kadata kenas adabi meir b'mamonam hachina menik nosh she kedesh lo yitamau bahen. The following uh, woman, when she's a betula, she receives a fine. This is talking about a, um, a a man who rapes a betula has to pay a, a fine to the father, and this includes, of course a kosher uh, uh, Jew, but also a, if she's a mamzeret or a netina or a kutit, a Samaritan. A Samaritan betula, the rapist, has to pay. Now, if you think that the rabbis made a fine and they said, you know what, Samaritans don't collect uh, damages and, or, or fines. There's a fine to not give a fine here, right? If you say, just like in the, the law of, uh, that according to the Bimeir, in the law of the ox, Samaritans do not collect injury because we want to treat them like non-Jews, then over here also, we should not allow the mamzeret to collect this money um, because she should be treated as a non-Jew. This law only applies to Jews. And so how come the rabbis don't say, oh, you know what, don't pay a mamzeret so that people will not think that she's Jewish and therefore will not come to assimilate. Abay explains that this case is different, but because we don't want a sinner, the rapist, to go and to go ahead and get rewarded. Not that he's getting money back, but that he won't have to pay a fine. He should not be able to get away with that. And so making sure that rapists have a deterrent and that they pay what they uh, deserve to pay, that's more important than the Gezera, that someone will think that the uh, Samaritans are, um, are Jews and they may come to uh, marry them. Uh, so in this case, we the rabbis did not impose this penalty and say that the Samaritan shouldn't get money. Uh, this is different than the person, uh, if a Jew's ox gores, 
that of a non-Jew, there they lose out. That's less important uh, that you know the Jews should be the Jews should be able to get away with his ox uh, go, going ahead and goring someone. Um, okay, the ox you know did uh, act on his own and so on. Um, so there, yes, yeah, true. Normally, he, the owner of the uh, the Jewish owner of the ox would have to pay. There, it makes sense to impose such a penalty so that it doesn't come to assimilation. But here, uh, we want to make sure that the rapist pays. Right? We already saw this phrase. Interestingly, in the beginning of this stuff, uh, when we talked about the non-Jews who didn't keep the Sheva Misvot, and Hashem said, "You know what? You didn't keep them. You're not now. You're not commanded to do them." And we saw that that also was looked like it was uh, that they were being rewarded. In fact, it means the opposite that they don't get to get to be commanded and get reward. Okay, now we ask, wait a second, we can actually do two things. Why don't we say that the rapist has to pay, so that way he gets a, he gets a punishment, um, and instead of giving it to the Samaritan, we'll take the money and we'll give it to the poor. And that way, people won't will know that a Samaritan, won't think that a Samaritan is Jewish, even though they really are Jewish, and uh, they'll think they're not Jewish and will not come to marry them. Why not give it to the poor? And the answer is, Mishum he says, because this is money that has no claimants, right? How, who's going to come to claim the money? You need to come to court um, and get the money out of the rapist. You need someone who's going to come as a, as a, um, as someone that, that can come and claim. If a poor person shows up at the court and says, oh, uh, he raped a Samaritan. I want the money. The Samaritan says, I don't want to give it to you. I want to give it to a different poor person. So so anyone can. So And if another person comes, says, no, I want to give it to give a different person poor person. So therefore, no one individual poor person can be the litigant that can come and say, I have a claim against you. And therefore, it's impossible to, to, to do that legally. Uh, so it has to be the Samaritan that will come and say, oh, this guy raped me or he raped my daughter and therefore he has to pay and so then the payment will go to the Samaritan. Baruch Adonai Amen